Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Miss Braun, complaining only makes the task more laborious. Is that even a real word? As it does appear in the dictionary, yes. Yes, it is. Don't mind me, Welly. I'm still adjusting. You are hardly alone in that respect. Part of the appeal being a field agent is the, is the change, change of, of scenery. scenery. That was what made this job interesting. The travel, the mystery. The explosives. Oh, yes, the explosives. Miss Braun, it sounds as if you need a holiday. Oh, yes, Wally. Someplace other than here. Someplace with sunshine and culture. South America? A bit more exotic than I'd expect from you, but yes, South America would be grand. Excellent. From the handwriting, it looks as if it's one of Agent Hill's cases. So get to reading so we can follow it accordingly. Uh, and look on the bright side. You have the mystery. Work, work, work. The Seven by P.C. Herring Agent Brandon Hill stood behind the door as it clicked closed behind him, watching as she slowly undressed for him, slipping her satin red robe off her shoulders to reveal the black and crimson corset hugging her bosom, curving her sides, and flowing effortlessly into her hips. The robe slid down her arms, only to be tossed onto the bed. She stepped forward and presented herself as though for some inspection. Welcome back, Senor Hill. Her voice maintained the low, seductive tone he'd grown used to over the past several months. Thank you for seeing me on such short notice, Maria. He took a step into the room, slipping off his own overcoat and setting it onto a chair next to him. Of course. Anything for one of my regulars. Especially one who is so caring with his women. Hale had to hide the blush he felt coming up. Usually, the ladybirds did not bother to learn much about their clients. Over the past several months, though, he'd been here more times than he could count, a fact for which he was already self-conscious. The fact that Maria knew him by name only added to whatever guilt he might already be feeling. She strode forward, the grace of a jungle cat on the prowl within her as her hands found his wrists and gently pulled him towards her as she slid them up his arms, over his shoulders, and around the back of his neck. His hands found themselves around her waist, and as they kissed, he fought the urge to undo her lacing. As though she sensed his motives, her hands slid down his chest, sneaking under his tunic, and then back up as she lifted the garment over his head. Hale brought his arms up to assist, and as the shirt came free, she tossed it aside. He leaned in for another, but she withdrew. Not yet. She put a single finger to Hill's lips, gently pushing him back. I suspect there is much on your mind tonight. Otherwise, I doubt you would have come unannounced as you did. As always, your instincts are above reproach. Hill smiled softly, and she gave a subtle bow of humility. Well then, make yourself comfortable while I fetch you some refreshments. Coffee? Would be lovely. Thank you. 
She shrugged her robe back on as she retreated into a side room, her kitchen. Hale helped himself to the bed, propping himself up into a seated position as he took in a heavy breath, trying to calm his frayed nerves. He'd been down here for several months already on assignment from Ministry Director Dr. Basil Sound. Sound had picked up a respectable lead regarding the lost city of El Dorado and seen it fit to send him down and investigate. There was little he needed to do outside of ministry business, and Hill had found Rio de Janeiro to be socially, culturally, and politically entertaining. Thus, it became his base of operations and a port of call when he wasn't taming the Amazon rainforest or scaling the Andes Mountains looking for any link to the lead that he had been assigned. Even with Rio's vibrant culture, many young men of his age found themselves in one of the many brothels dotting the map, and he was no exception. But unlike the lesser mature of the male species, Hill had found that, over time, loyalty to one yielded something much more fulfilling than the carnal pleasures of man. True companionship. Still, the weight of his assignment had grown heavy on his shoulders. After six months, he had very little to show for his efforts, and it was only a matter of time before sound demanded results. For now, he had none. He took in another breath as he surveyed the small room. It hadn't changed much since he had been here last, but his eye caught on something. A small clay vase, complete with ornate and intricate carvings and sculpting. It looked as though it had sat on her shelf for as long as some of the books, but for the life of him, he couldn't recall seeing it before. Perhaps he had never noticed. She returned and presented a cup of coffee and its associated saucer to him. He did not meet her eye, his gaze locked on the vase. Something wrong? Heel motioned to the vase. What is that? She followed his line of sight to the pottery and retrieved it. This? <laughs> well, it would depend on who you ask. What do you mean? There is a story behind this piece. He brightened at that. Would you like to know it? Tell me a tale, my Scheherazade. She smiled at the comparison, a sign that perhaps his influence during this assignment would leave a lasting impression. Maria slid onto the bed and sidled up beside him. As she positioned her head on his chest, she passed the vase to him. Hale took a final sip of coffee before setting it down on the nightstand and accepting the piece. For something no bigger than his coffee cup, it was far heavier than he had expected. Legend tells of a king, a ruler of a tribe of aboriginals who lived across the Amazon in what we now would call Colombia. He ruled over his people, and the tribe lived in great prosperity, until the conquistadores invaded. Fearing for their survival, the aboriginals fled their capital city, El Dorado, a city made entirely of gold. She paused at that, and Hill forced himself to remain neutral. How long had this piece been sitting under his nose? In order to protect their wealth, legend says the aboriginals etched a map across seven vases, such as the one in your very hand. But when they evacuated, the map was separated and the pieces scattered that they may never be joined together again. And the location of their gilded city, now haunted with the spirits of its native people, whose hearts never left, remains lost for all time. 
Hale struggled to remain dispassionate. The waver in his voice betrayed him, though, as he asked. And you believe this legend? <laughs> the Spaniards have searched the Amazon on and off for the past three centuries and turned up nothing but debt, death, and failure. It is but a myth, a story with which to dazzle children and wide-eyed dreamers interested in instant riches. The vase is no more a piece of a map than other crumbs on a dinner plate, and the lost city of El Dorado is no more real than Atlantis, that lost city of the sea you told me of. Hale had to stop himself from correcting her on that last point, as the case was still ongoing, but he gave a polite nod to her and then turned back to the vase. Then why do you keep it? It is by the mere trinket. Beautiful, yes, but of no real value. I keep it as a conversation piece for when my clients ask for an intriguing story before partaking of what my body has to offer. I see. Well, my Sherazad, I am perfectly vexed by both your beauty and your stories. She slid up his chest and leaned in to kiss him. My stories are not my only gift. He slipped his hand around her and pulled her down on top of him. As he passed the vase to the end table while tasting Maria's sweet lips, his eyes followed the pottery to its temporary resting place. Hill strolled lazily through the Tinker's District as he made his way back to town from the brothel. The morning with her had been wonderful, with a full breakfast, another go at each other, and the acquisition of the vase. My sister in Cornwall fancies herself a collector of fine pottery. He regretted lying to her then, as he did now. As it has no value to you, I'm sure we can come to a suitable price that would allow you to replace this conversation piece with another. Maria had caved at that, and they haggled down to twenty-five, which he immediately settled, along with the bill for her services. This part of Rio always caught the afternoon sun, the wash of light blinding him until his eyes finally adjusted. It didn't help that this part of town was rife with brass and copper piping of the tinkers, much of which had been polished to a gleam and reflected sunlight all over the small district. That was the thing about the tinkers in this world. They took such pride in their outward appearances. Inside, the shops would be humid, loud, dirty, and even run down in places. As Hill watched, he afforded himself time to take in the storefronts. One shopkeeper was tinkering with a display of mirrors, all connected on various gears and cogs. When configured in certain pre-designated patterns, the mirrors aligned, reflecting the sunlight into a tighter and tighter beam until it converged on a piece of parchment, setting it ablaze. Across the way, a small, wry gentleman worked on what appeared to be a mechanical construct of a human female about Hill's size. Next to it, a sign read, Cyrus, the first cog-induced replicant intended for servitude. Hale chuckled at that. The notion of a mechanical being that acted like a human was pure fantasy. Never in one thousand years would that come to pass. The morning stroll eventually brought Hill to the city library. The stifling heat and humidity abated very little once inside, even with fans oscillating high above but something about the smell of old books took his mind from it. He soon found his place in the reference sections and immediately set to work. Time fell away, and minutes yielded to hours. In turn, the hours yielded into a day, 
followed by another and another as Hill spent nearly every moment he could find plundering the city's resources for more information. It had become apparent very early on that Maria's story was far from unreal. Casual conversations with locals and a few archaeological records buried in the city's archives made several dozen references to the lost city and the seven vases, of which Hill was now sure he possessed one. Diving deeper into his research, however, added another wrinkle to this curious adventure. Pages had been mutilated or removed. Yes, removed was the correct word. Entire volumes referencing the lost city's location or the vases had either been destroyed or gone missing. Pictures, drawings, and maps had also been taken or defaced, marred to the point of unsuitability. Had things been missing from one or two resources, he might have considered it a run of poor luck. But for every reference to be removed from every source? Too coincidental. And for anyone helping him, whether directly or not, frightfully inconvenient. The door to her room was shut, but he'd messaged ahead that he'd be calling on her. He knocked gently. She gave no answer. He knocked again. Silence. Unconsciously, his eyes surveyed the scene and noticed the marks of damaged wood in the frame. As he knocked a third time, the door gave away slightly, the locking mechanism having not been engaged. It couldn't. Not anymore. It had been ripped from its place. Maria? She lay on the bed, her ankles and wrists bound with coarse rope that bit deep into her soft flesh. The satin of her robe masked the blood but could not conceal the smell of death or the sight of the life force oozing out of cuts in her arms and legs and pouring down her chest from a gash in her throat. Impulse told him to rush to her, to sweep her into his arms, to beg for forgiveness and asking his storyteller for one more story. One breath later, his head cleared. He could not be implicated. He had to stay inconspicuous. It was time to slip into anonymity. He would grieve, just not now. He turned to leave, but a glint of silver caught his eye. From her toe hung a pendant, a small silver piece on which was an etching a human eye surrounded by a triangle. Hill recognized it immediately as the Eye of Providence, also known as the All-Seeing Eye. Quickly, he slipped the small leather strap from her toe and swiped the pendant. Slipping out of a side exit, he darted around the corner and into a side street. His chest heaved as he sucked down deep breaths, the soft but sharp tinkling noise of the All-Seeing Eye striking against the vase. His mind conjured a vivid image of his Scheherazade, an image he pushed away as he ran faster. He rounded the corner and stopped short as the line tightened around his neck. It was too blunt to be a garrot wire, but certainly strong enough to constrict around Hill's neck and stop him from breathing. He drove his elbow back to where he assumed the assailant's gut would have been. He hit home, but he earned no slack from the rope. As the grayness clouded over the periphery of his vision, Hill lifted his leg. Dropping his arm, his hand slid into his boot where his fingers wrapped around the leather banding of the flat blade resting there. Hale's unseen assailant screamed in agony as the rope released. Hill collapsed to the ground, gasping for air, feeling the dirt and warm rock against his palms. He suddenly realized where he had left the blade. Behind him, he heard movements from the left. He rolled right, reached up, and ripped the boot knife from the man's thigh, giving the wound a swift kick for good measure. Hill caught a blow to the head as he returned to his feet, 
this one coming from a second attacker he hadn't even known was there. He staggered to his right, recoiling from the blow, and found himself a third friend as an uppercut sent a shock through his skull. He lost track of how many strikes he took as the three ganged up on him. Then, one of the men suddenly stopped. He heard grunting from a woman, and this unexpected, but quite welcome, lull in the attack gave Hill an opening. The boot knife still in his hand, Hill swiped at the nearest ankle. Considering the give he felt in the blade and the choked scream, he had severed someone's Achilles tendon. Rising to his feet, Hill spun and attacked the closest moving blur, slicing a face wide open. Hill pushed himself back, hard, against the building behind him, his blade stopping still on seeing the woman, a blade of her own poised to strike. Behind this lethal angel, the one who started it all, known to Hill by the wound in the man's leg, fell. To begin with, my thanks. Now, pleasantries aside, who the hell are you? I could ask you the same thing, but who I am is unimportant, as is who you are. What is important is the vase you have in your sigil. What of it? I've been watching you, as have they. You haven't been very subtle in your research on the Lost City and have garnered their attention, which has, in turn, garnered mine. I will ask again, Signora. Who are you? All you need to know at present is that I represent the monarchy. She pulled back her cloak, revealing the crest of the Brazilian royal court. Hale's eyes widened at that, and he lowered his weapon to his side, not wishing to further threaten someone of stature. Glad to see I have your attention, senor. She lowered her own weapon. Your research is leading you down a path you are not prepared to walk. You aren't the only person searching for the lost city, and if you are not careful, you will be consumed by it. Care to explain that? She stepped back into the shadows. You have heard rumors of the monarchy's decline, I assume? Hill nodded once. These three represent a revolutionary faction seeking to overthrow this country's rightful rulers. They believe El Dorado will fund their efforts. If they are successful in their search, their belief is correct. They presently control six of the items. They assume the horse still had the final jar. Imagine their surprise. And what would you have of me? Prevent them from achieving their goals. The court wants you to recover the remaining six vases and... And do what? Turn them over to you? The monarchy has no interests in myths such as El Dorado. They are more concerned about the present, and as such they lack the resources to stop this group. However, if the legend proves true, we must ask you to keep them from gaining possession of the lost city. Hill's eyes narrowed. Why should I do this? I'm a foreigner. Even if I believed you, what do I care about your political problems? He let the silence hang there for a moment. His service to the ministry, secret though he hoped it still was, meant ramifications if he acted, especially if his actions actively interfered with the politics of a foreign power. As a rule, this was not their purview, and the director would not look kindly on this interference. Are you so naive to think their takeover would be a peaceful coup, fueled by thousands of citizens protesting the monarchy in the central square downtown? refusing to leave until the monarch steps down. The fortunes of El Dorado would do far more than found a revolution. Armies, airships, 
firearms and explosives of a fashion you have never dreamt. It will begin with a violent insurrection, but it will certainly not end here. Hale took a moment, his mind turning the possibilities and outcomes before he replied. I must consider this before I act. Regardless, I have one on me as you already know. At the very least, I will simply disappear with the item. They can have the other six. He looked down at the fallen. But they'll never find me again, meaning they will never find the lost city. He looked up to meet her again, but she had disappeared from view. Do as you see fit. Very well then. I will have all seven. Returning these vases to the Ministry would not only prevent this group from obtaining El Dorado, but put the Empire in such a position that, on finding the lost city, they could present it back to the Brazilian monarch as a gift. This act would more than likely ensure the monarch's continued stability and have the monarch indebted to Her Majesty. No need to send a wireless. Sound would approve. Now all he needed was to find out where they were keeping the other six. Fortunately for him, he had leads. Only one of them was a dead end. Now, which one of you strapping lads would like to help me out? The one with the cut tendon gave out a small whimper. Delightful. He twirled the boot knife in his grasp. Hale cleared his throat as he slotted the last knife into the rotating barrel locked against his right arm. Based on the design of the Smith & Wesson revolver so popular in the United States, these knife barrels fit around his arms under the sleeves of his shirt. The device comprised two main components, the stationary anchor that clamped around his arm just below the elbow and extended a forward about two-thirds of his arm. The forward section was a rotating barrel that extended to just below his wrist. With a subtle flick, the barrel would spin into the next position and extend a new blade into his hand, ready for use. Each held at six throwing blades, giving him a total of twelve between the pair. Satisfied the mechanisms were in working order, he slipped his shirt sleeves over his arms, strapped on his belt knife, holstered his pistol, and stepped out of the side room to speak with his guest. The young man had been very courteous and quietly waiting for Hill to make himself ready. The fact that he'd been tied to a chair and gagged might have helped. No sooner had he released the gag, but his prisoner spat on him. Hill wiped the spittle clean with a kerchief before slipping the knife and the pistol out of their respective protection and set them on a small side table next to a small brass box. He wanted to appear unthreatening. Here's how this will work, my old chap. I have questions. You have answers. You will provide them. I wish to ask each question only once. Anytime I am forced to repeat myself, either because you refuse to answer or I am not satisfied with your answer, I will stab you. I will start with your left thigh. Do you understand me? If you think I'm going to tell you anything, you're a damned fool. From across the room, Hill threw his right arm forward. The mechanism under his shirt released a flat blade. It sliced through the air before slicing through the meat of the man's left thigh, just as promised. The man's howl drowned out the soft click of the next blade sliding into position. That was not a satisfactory answer. Do you understand me? Yes! Good. He straightened his collar and adjusted his shirt as though trying to make himself look presentable, 
drawing closer to his prisoner as he spoke. I already know what you're looking for and why you felt it prudent to jump me in the dark. But you will tell me what organization you represent. Illuminati? Freemasons? What makes you think I represent any organization? As Hill was now standing over him, the blade that entered the right thigh buried itself up to the pommel. He waited for the screaming to stop. No need to discharge another blade into your left leg, as it is already sending signals to your brain that it needs attention. Saturate one area with pain, and it grows numb to it. Your right leg, on the other hand... Hill removed the pendant from his pocket. A woman is killed, and this calling card is left behind. I am then caught unaware by three men, each of them... Using the tip of the belt knife, he pushed back the prisoner's shirt. Wearing the same pendant. May the divine strike with the wrath of his vengeance, and may you burn in hell! The third blade hit the man's shoulder with such force it made the chair rock. This time the prisoner was gasping for air. Hill would have felt a moment's pity had it not been for Maria's image in his mind. Perhaps I will, but not before I get my answers from you. He smacked the blade in the right thigh. His victim winced, receiving the message. I don't know. And I don't have time for these games. Lives are at stake. Hill's face grew red and his nostrils flared. Visions of his Scheherazade on the bed, her throat slashed, was all he could see. His hand suddenly gripped and twisted the blade buried in the man's right leg, carving and slicing through the flesh. Tell me! His shouts drowned out the man screaming as his voice gave out and he lost consciousness. Oh no, you don't get to give up that easily. Hill reached to the table beside him and grabbed the small pistol-like device out of the box. He jabbed the needle into the man's neck and pulled the trigger. Tiny gears pumped amber liquid into the man until the glass chamber emptied. His prisoner jolted awake. I can keep it going all night, chum. He held up the gun. And now, so can you. All right. He gasped in agony and pulled on the restraints, exhausted. All right, yes, we are Illuminati. We keep a small camp in the rainforest. That's where the other six vases are. Coordinates. His prisoner looked at him, a small hint of defiance returning to his face. Hill replaced the stimulant in his hand for his belt knife, spinning it on his finger. Very well. Just remember, this was your choice, not mine. Six days later, Hill lay flat in a patch of jungle overgrowth, observing a large encampment through a pair of magnifying goggles. At first, the encampment didn't seem much larger than a bandit camp. But as he spent more of the past day, he'd grown more certain that this was the place. The activity seemed to swirl around a large central tent, the goings-on inside which Hill did not know. But over the course of the day, he'd seen special reverence being given to a small wooden crate. Two people stood to guard it at all times, and whenever the case was to be moved, two additional men hefted the load while the guards flanked an escort. If they did indeed have the other six vases, that was where he would start. He checked his gauntlets, making sure he had reloaded. He suspected he'd need all his resources in order to capture the six. The seventh was, of course, secure. 
in the event something went wrong, he would not run the risk of allowing the final piece of the puzzle to fall into their hands. As the back of his head suddenly filled with pain and his vision blurred, he realized just before he lost consciousness, this was probably a good thing. When he came to, his head rang as though Agent Braun had set off one of her trademark explosives only a hundred yards away. Something warm and wet slid down the right side of his skull, and as he tried to wipe the blood away, he found himself securely fastened to the chair, his arms tied behind him. His fingers felt the coarse hemp fibers around his wrist, thick, heavy rope. A subtle tension of the arm, and he felt his lifeline still in place. Brilliant. A strike to his wound shocked any remaining semblance of fatigue from his consciousness, snapping him back to coherence in an instant. He shook his head, blinked, and then took in the chamber around him. Stone pillars, flaming torches, shackles, racks, all the usual comforts of home. Good afternoon, Senor Santiago. Hale turned at the sound of the voice coming from the shadow in the corner of the room. Really? Is it afternoon already? Are you sure it's not, oh, I don't know, the middle of the night? He smirked. It seems so much more appropriate to the love of darkness you and your organization have cultivated. What are you, Illuminati? Another hard strike drove into his jaw, and the taste of blood trickled into his mouth. He turned and spat. I'll take that as a yes. Are you quite finished, Senor Santiago? Hale spat again, ignoring his unseen interrogator. I'd think that an organization as powerful as the Illuminati could afford a bit more bloody illumination. I mean, torches, really? What is this, the Dark Ages? He chuckled, amused at his pun. I am not laughing, Senor Santiago, if that is your real name. From the corner of the room, the man tossed Hill's billfold to his feet. It flopped open, showing a card that falsely identified him as Hector Santiago. What are you doing in the jungles of Colombia? Hill snickered to himself. <laughs> Searching for the Flying Dutchman. Another strike, again on the jaw. He suddenly remembered what he had told his prisoner during their interrogation. Saturate one area with pain, and it grows numb to it. He only wished that his numbness would come just a bit faster. Do not insult my intelligence. We found you in the outskirts of our encampment. Even if the Dutchman did exist, which it does not, the seas are very far from here. If you're playing the role of archaeologist... You must be a very poor one, Senor Santiago. Ships no longer just sail the seven seas you get. It wasn't called the Flying Dutchman because the name just rolled off the tongue. Let us, as you English say, not dilly-dally. You have in your possession the seventh. We are willing to go to extraordinary lengths to obtain it. What we did to your whore is nothing compared to what we will do to you if you don't tell us where it is. Behind him, Hill shifted his position as best he could and prepared himself. 
Maybe the next punch would do the trick. The seventh. The seventh? The seventh vase, Mr. Santiago. Bloody hell. And here I thought you were talking about the seventh yard arm of the Flying Dutchman. You had me all excited there for a moment. This time, the strike shot across his jaw so hard the chair tipped from the force, and despite his best efforts, he tipped over, falling hard on his right shoulder. The muscle in his right arm involuntary tensed, and he felt the click as the barrel delivered a knife into his palm. With the weapon released from its housing, the barrel tried to rotate, but caught on the hilt. With the tip caught between the rope and Hill's skin, the agent twisted and contorted his wrists, working the blade deeper into place, using the jam in the barrel as leverage. Gruff hands clamped down on his shoulders and hoisted him back into an upright position, the movement pulling his arms wider and shifting the rope just enough that one of his bindings cut free. Hill flipped the knife into his grip and with a flick of the wrist threw it blindly behind him. The scream of pain and Hill's unexpected freedom distracted his Illuminati host, but only for a brief moment. Another two blades shot out, one passing by his interrogator, cutting nothing but air, but the other sliced, nicking his arm. The Illuminati spun away as though turning to snatch the weapon from midair as it passed him. Seeing his opportunity, Hill summoned another pair and with a quick swipe at his ankles severed the ropes binding him to the chair legs. He heard, behind him, the enforcer attempting to stand. Hill, his chest still bound to the chair's back, stood and drove backwards pinning the enforcer between the stone wall and the chair. It broke and splintered from the impact and without the chair, Hill's remaining bonds fell slack. He spun to his right, burying his left-hand blade into the assailant's flank. As the enforcer went down, Hill turned to attack, but tucked into a quick evasion as firelight reflected off another blade coming down to meet his eye. He rolled up to his feet and turned to size up his Illuminati opponent. You dare and try kill me with my own blade, old chum. Hill flipped the weapon in his offhand into a defensive reverse grip. One of many, it seems, Senor Santiago. It seems that my men did not search you as well as they should have. He started to advance, but Hill stepped back and circled, keeping their distant constant. I wouldn't be much of a monkey knife fighter if I couldn't throw my weapons much like a monkey throws its own. He did not get the chance to finish that thought. His attacker charged forward, driving the attack down from above. Hill ducked down and to the attacker's side, swinging his defensive arm out, and the two smacked against each other harmlessly. Hill's swing came with more force, throwing his attacker off balance. As the Illuminati fell past him, Hill spun around and drove his blade into his opponent's neck. Amateur. As the rush of the fight passed, Hill took stock of the room. A ladder had been built into the far wall and led up to a trap door in the ceiling. Upon reaching the top, he tested the door, lifting just enough to take a peek. It appeared as though the opening led to the inside of a tent, a rather large one at that. Likely the main command tent he'd seen during his surveillance. Outside of the main entrance stood the two guards over the crate, as well as ten others crowded around an afternoon campfire. Slipping out from below, Hill's eyes narrowed on the guarded crate. At the center of the grand table between him and the tent's opening, his satchel lay, its contents spilled out everywhere. Did they really think he would bring the seventh face with him? Right thick, these Illuminati. As he began shoveling his essentials back into his satchel, his hand found purchase on the sticks of dynamite he'd brought with him. Like Athena from Zeus, a plan emerged as he slipped out of the back of the tent. 
With the explosives and sparker in hand, Hill set the fuse and lobbed the stick toward the far corner of the camp and took cover. Five seconds later, the explosion rang out, sending dirt, wood, and debris in all directions. The camp reacted to the sudden blast in a flurry of movement as men scrambled to their feet, grabbing weapons of all types. The two guarding the crate stayed behind, but to their credit, they turned in their places, craning their necks to get a glimpse at what might be happening. Anything to break the monotony. Hill did not disappoint. As one of the men turned to face him, a blade cut through the air. It embedded itself into the man's throat, preventing him from calling out. Hill charged the distracted second. Like a jungle cat, he leapt into the air, plowing into the second, knocking him over the crate. They both hit the ground and rolled twice before separating. Hill returned to his feet. The second guard, a knife buried in his chest, did not. The crate had been secured with a lock, but with the proper leverage from Hill's belt knife, the metal latch ripped free. Inside, a small case hung suspended from a series of springs and rope. It did not appear booby-trapped, but rather a valiant effort to create a system that would hold the case secure and safeguard it from any shock caused by sudden movement. It was otherwise unsecured and slid from the harnesses with ease. Laying it flat on the ground, Hill opened it. Inside, seven indentations had been carved into what looked like velvet padding. Six held a small vase. The seventh was empty. A smile of satisfaction and victory graced his face, but the shouts of people coming back to camp brought his reverie to a close. Securing the case and slipping its strap over his shoulder, Hill returned to his satchel and set the remaining sticks of dynamite inside the empty crate before beating a hasty retreat. He heard shouts of the first responders coming across their dead guards. Seconds later, the dynamite exploded, sending more debris and bodies flying in all directions. As he paused to catch his breath, Hill looked back to see the Illuminati outpost now consumed by fire. With the last vase safe in a smuggling compartment in his steamer trunk, already bound for London, Hill had obtained the full set of seven. In the process, he'd ensured a crippling setback for these revolutionaries. Whether the Ministry would seek out the Lost City or not, Hill did not know for sure. He would recommend it, of course, and as he thought about it, he believed the director would indeed take up the expedition in time. When that happened, he would be sure to come back and finish what he'd started with the Illuminati. With a final glance at the case, Agent Brandon Hill set out for the nearest depot to book passage back to London. P.C. Herring made his debut as a writer and podcast novelist on 010110 with Cybrosis. This cyberpunk adventure remained in the top five charts of podiobooks.com's top ten list after its October release there and still remains a fan favourite. His audio fiction can also be heard in Scott Sigler's The Crypt, Book One, The Crew, and in my own Chronicles of the Order anthology. Currently, he is developing the first instalment of his upcoming Slipspace trilogy. When he's not writing and podcasting, P.C. Herring puts his degree in accounting and his MBA skills to good use as a staff accountant for a private company in suburban Chicago. He also works as both the accountant and interim publisher for Escape Artists Incorporated. Find out more about P.C. Herring and his work at pcherring.net, cybrosisnovel.com, and escapeartists.net. 
For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at TheGearHeart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.